All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us this time to fellowship together as family, for giving us all that we need in the way of provisions so that we can do this very thing even. We thank you, Father, for making moments like this wonderful times to reflect on your grace and your love. We thank you for your patience and loving kindness for these are new every morning. We thank you for reminding us of these things and so much more. We pray for those in this world that are lost, still searching for peace and happiness in places where it just doesn't exist. <clears throat> we pray that your precious light be reconsidered by them as the only pathway to peace and freedom. We pray that our strength never wanes and that we do not grow weary of doing good, Father. We pray also for those of this congregation, those that you have carved out of your own flock to gather as we do so regularly. We pray especially for those who cannot be here this morning for legitimate reasons and for those who are too weak to be here, for to you we know there is a distinction. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. May it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the difficult passages, Grace and Works, Part 22, just a refresher. Difficult is really um, not a misnomer, but um, a play on words, meaning the only reason they're difficult is because man makes them difficult. Um, on the subject of reading your Bibles, uh, which has been coming up for an awful lot for a very long time, um, there's an individual uh, that lived back in the 1800s by the name of J.C. Ryle. Uh, he's an English uh, theologian slash pastor. And he had a lot to say on a lot of things, but uh, he wrote this um, back when he was alive, Eight Profitable Ways to Read the Bible. And I thought I'd share them, the highlights. Eight Profitable Ways to Read the Bible. Number one, begin reading your Bible this very day. The way to do a thing is to do it. The way to read the Bible is actually to read it. Yeah, you guys are laughing, but there's a re. All right, I saw that. Who's got the sausage fingers? There's a reason why that makes sense. It's because man's always making up all kinds of excuses why not to read the Bible. Well, I might not understand, or I might not blah, 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 blah. Just read your Bible and start today. If you're one of those that are doing this number, stop it. That's what he's saying. I agree. Stop it. Then read your Bible. Just read it. Number two of the eight profitable ways to read your Bible by J.C. Ryle. Read the Bible with an earnest desire to understand it. Do not think for a moment that the great object is to turn over a certain quantity of printed paper. 
and that it matters nothing whether you understand it or not. Number three, read the Bible with childlike faith and humility. Open your heart as you open God's book and say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Resolve to believe implicitly whatever you find there, however much it may run counter to your own desires and prejudices. Sounds an awful, sounds familiar, doesn't it? And I just found this today, this morning. So it's interesting how he encourages all of us because this was written, you know, a couple hundred years ago almost. Um, so you see there's nothing new under the sun. Number four, read the Bible in a spirit of obedience and self-application. Sit down to study of it with a daily determination that you will live by its rules. Rest on its statements and act on its commands. Number five, <clears throat> again, Read the Bible daily. Make it a part of every day's business to read and meditate on some portion of God's Word. Number six. <clears throat> read all of the Bible and read it in an orderly way. I fear there are many parts of the Word which some people never read at all. This is, to say at the least, a very presumptuous habit. Scripture says, 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is profitable. Me right now, I'm in the middle of Ezekiel. I mean, you know, this is like ancient stuff, right? But if you read the blog, you know that there's also fruit. Verse 7, read the Bible fairly and honestly. Determine to take everything in its plain, obvious meaning and regard all forced interpretations with great suspicion. And I've been teaching you this, right? If it's complicated, something's probably wrong. It's one thing to not understand the, the local culture or the time in which something was written or you know, maybe a tradition or something like that. It's another thing to jam um, the Bible into your prejudices or what you want it to say. So read the Bible fairly and honestly, determined to take everything in its plain, obvious meaning and regard all forced interpretations with great suspicion. As a general rule, whatever a verse of the Bible seems to mean, it does mean. And then number eight of the eight profitable ways to read the Bible. <clears throat> read the Bible with Christ continually in view. Now that's a big one. The grand primary object of all Scripture is to testify of Jesus. That's what I see. Like I just said, I'm in Ezekiel. That's who I see. I see Christ. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. Always read the Bible with Jesus Christ continually in view. So I just thought I'd share that because I know a lot of you um, have begun reading your Bibles faithfully. 
um, and are really uh, improving on the topic itself, uh, doing it more and more uh, and sort of reaping the benefits of doing that very thing. And so hopefully these things will help you give a greater, or give you a greater perspective even on that one fundamental activity in the spiritual life. So those are wonderfully placed thoughts from a man who lived between 1816 and 1900. And I think really the main point is to just read your Bibles and read them with a pure lens. That's what I heard. Read your Bibles and read them with a pure lens. And I'm just sharing here uh, what I've learned in my own spiritual walk. If I fail to read my Bible every day, which happens, or if I fail to start my day with prayerful fellowship with the Lord God, my day lacks peace. I lack peace. It's just missing. I started my day wrong. Um, so it's kind of easy to, to finish the day wrong, isn't it? Right? Without fail, if I refuse this one element of basic grace, I find myself cranky, I know it's hard to believe. Tammy's laughing louder than anyone. Not sure why. I find myself cranky, uneasy, lacking the peace that I know Jesus Christ Himself gave me. So I was just reflecting on this. Maybe this will help you think even deeper on the subject in your own time. If you lack peace... You know you lack peace if you're persistently very tired, but you still cannot find rest. I should say, and you still cannot find rest. You're persistently very tired, but you still cannot find rest. In other words, you're tired, so what do you do when you're tired? You lay down, you go to sleep. But if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not taking in His grace, you never find rest. That's the point. You realize you're tired. You know what the remedy is, or you, you think you know what the remedy is, but you never find rest. That's how you know you lack peace. If you've just related to the point on the board, please know that the Spirit's been trying to deliver you from this ailment. I'd like to open up, and you know, you might say, well, why this ailment? Um, I want to open up this morning's message with a little parable. It's the parable about two little boys in Central Park, which is in New York City. Now, before I begin, allow me to give you this in addition to the point on the board. And I need you to synthesize. <clears throat> Satan and his servants pretend to be angels of light, 2 Corinthians 11, 14-15. How great is your darkness? In other words, how much do you lack true understanding? If you think you are in the light, but it's Satan's counterfeit light. Matthew 6.23 Angels of light. How great is your darkness if you think you're in the light, but you're actually in a counterfeit? So here's the parable. Remember, parables really just drive one basic point home, so don't get all crazy. I mean, I wrote this myself, so 
<clears throat> there are two boys sitting on two separate benches in Central Park. A famous photographer is wandering around taking ad hoc shots for his freelance biz. He sees the first boy whose countenance is aglow with wonder and love for God's creatures, especially the birds that he sees flying and chirping. So the photographer snaps a picture and saves it. The photographer walks a little further and sees the second boy on a more secluded bench. And without thinking, he snaps a picture of the boy smiling. Only this time he wonders what the boy is smiling about because there are no birds flying around him. So the photographer approaches the boy and after a brief introduction realizes this boy is blind. He also notices that there's a pair of speakers, one to his right and another to his left, playing bird sounds. But the boy doesn't know this, that on park days, his mom sits him on this remote bench and tells him to listen to the beautiful birds as they fly around him. The photographer sends both pictures to his favorite publisher, and the publisher says about the first photo of the boy who observed real birds. Wow, this one is magnificent. But to the second one, he says, you know, this one's a great picture, but something's missing. I can't put my finger on it, but something's missing. The photographer then lets the publisher in on his little experiment and informs him of the key difference, namely that the first boy could see and experience real birds. However, the second boy <clears throat> was deceived by the person he trusted the most in his life, his own mother, for he was blind and simply listening to recordings of birds. The publisher agreed to what the photographer had already realized, that something, though indescribable, was certainly missing in the picture of the blind boy. This is the analogy of the indescribable difference between a person who is walking by the light of Christ versus the one who is walking by the counterfeit light of the God of this world. Both are walking, though the walking is very different. And both believe that they are in the light, but one is totally deceived. Remember, not all believing is the same. That was our introduction to the difficult passages, if you remember. And for the second person, how great is their darkness when they think they are in the light? Hence the point on the board. Satan and his servants <clears throat> pretend to be angels of light, 2 Corinthians 11, 4-15. How great is your darkness? How much do you lack true understanding? If you think you are in the light, but you're in Satan's counterfeit light. Matthew 6.23 What this means for folks like yourselves 
is that from my perspective, and more importantly, from the Spirit's perspective, at some level, you are all lacking peace. At some level. And he's saying that you'll certainly find it with a change in perspective on life. So the difficult question then, of course, is how does this happen? Often, as you've likely noticed over the years, it is a strong hand from the pulpit. That's how it happens sometimes. It's a strong hand. and I was reflecting on this um, and the type of lessons that, I mean, frankly, from almost the inception of the ministry itself, it's just been <clears throat> really difficult lessons over and over. During last Sunday's leadership meeting, I intimated to my leaders that I sometimes wonder about the tone of the lessons the Spirit has me teach here. And just for the record, I wasn't asking for them for input. I was just throwing it out there saying, anybody else notice the tone of the lessons in general? But I wasn't asking them for help modifying the lessons as I always follow God, the Holy Spirit's guidance. Nonetheless, I still wonder about such things. So I threw it out there. For example, for my, or from my perspective, the lessons that keep pumping from this pulpit are typically challenging. And some of you would probably argue that's a euphemism. That means making light. More than challenging, mister. They're hard. They're tough. These, quote, challenging lessons are no less grace than any other pulpit doing what it's supposed to be doing. I do what I'm told. It's that simple. He reveals certain things to me, and I teach them. Maybe if you weren't such screw-ups. Oh, that's it, mister. <laughs> See, that's as loud as I can get. Normally, I'd be, like, screaming by now. Woo! All I know is I'm doing what I'm doing, and I pray, and I know that other pulpits are doing what they need to do. Um, and they're just not always the same. So it's just an observation. So when I asked about these lessons, immediately Deacon Johnson said this. He said, I'd rather be pummeled by hard lessons, by grace, than have my feelings stroked. I'd rather walk out of here a little sore than artificially uplifted. God knows what I need. The reason I share this with you is that this good work that the Lord performs through this pulpit, through this vessel, and even Scott's to some degree, well, let me just say that it's wearying. It's heavy. It's a heavy burden to bear. Um, and I was thinking about it further. No one sees the constant effects of this calling on my life more than those who live with me, namely my family. Based on a lesson, they could probably tell you what this man will be like afterwards as he walks up the stairs from the garage to the living room. 
they probably already know what I'm going to look like when I enter into my living room up here on the board. <clears throat> my family, they not only know how difficult being a godly shepherd is, they see it every day and are affected by it always. You see, when my heart cracks and shows signs of breaking, theirs do too. With that said, here's what my wife Tammy sent me recently following a discussion we had over Sunday dinner with my mom present. <clears throat> we were talking about the lessons and that they are difficult. She wrote to me, I was thinking about our conversation regarding how God the Holy Spirit has you teach the tough lessons as I was reading Hebrews 12, 11 and 12. And she said, our God is pouring out His magnificent grace on us. She's a tough cookie. I've never asked her this, but she'd probably be here if she wasn't my wife. Just say yes. <laughs> no, nah, it's true. Right? Because this person realizes that this is grace. And that sometimes tough love is a lot harder to administer than, you know, the fluffy kind of let's throw some rose petals around kind of love that does absolutely nothing for anyone. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm grateful to those closest to me in the ministry, DJ, Tammy, and there are others that understand the value of this pulpit and the supernatural gift of a shepherd to the flock. We are a lot rarer, I believe, than most will have you believe. I think there's an awful lot of people that stand behind pulpits that do not have this gift. How do I know? Call it discernment. A lot of good teachers out there that may on occasion, like Scotty does, stand behind a pulpit and teach a good lesson. But there is a massive chasm between a shepherd and a teacher. As DJ said so plainly, God gives us whatever we need to hear. Let's check out that scripture that Tammy gave me. Go to Hebrews 12, 11. Hebrews 12, 11. <clears throat> God gives us whatever we need to hear. <clears throat> Hebrews 12, 11. All discipline. What's that say again? Some? No, all. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. In other words, you aren't getting from point A to point B. You will always lack peace unless you're willing to submit to the truth, unless you're willing to submit to what the Spirit has to say 
even from this pulpit, unless you're willing to submit, as J.C. Ryle said, to what the Word of God says, regardless of your own sensitivities or prejudices. This is how it works. You were born awful, and it requires an awful lot of discipline to get you ironed out. And I would argue, because we're in this country, the discipline in many ways is that much harder. Because we are like a bunch of lukewarm people that say, what do I have need of? I have everything I need. And God's like, Bleh. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Sometimes when we listen to a class or maybe even read our Bibles, the Spirit hits us hard. But that's just the process of purchasing what our Lord said, gold refined by fire, and having our eyes opened so that we may see, you know, like Scripture says up here on the board, Revelation 3.18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, not the merchandise in the world, so that you may become rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed in the eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. See what? See it all. How? As truth. Just give me the truth about me, about others, about this world. Who cares? I just want to know the truth, don't you? Or do you want to live in the matrix? Do you, want to, do you want to play pretend? Because I'll tell you what, this pulpit was not designed to coddle you so that you can play pretend. There are plenty of, te- uh, plenty of churches that do that. Many of them are complete flat-out liars. If you were here on Thursday night, there's one of them. This is about seeing it all as truth. What I've realized in my own life is that while the Bible is always open and available to me, of course, there are just some times when I'm so spiritually beat up that I just need someone else to minister to me. Not just my own set of eyes, even, as I read my Bible I don't, quote, need it a lot, strictly speaking, as a pastor who is supernaturally energized and equipped to stand on this side of the pulpit. But I'm not lying when I say that it's really nice to be able to sit back and be ministered to. I'm, also, I'm, all, I'm sometimes jealous of you. Like, seriously, I walk by all of you when I come to the pulpit, and I'm like, look at them all there. This is going to be great. There he is, Mr. Faithful. There he is, throat half hanging out. There he is still, right? I get to sit back and go, <laughs> and then when you guys walk out, you're all of these huge bellies, right? Whoa, that was awesome. And I'm tired, 
and I got my family waiting for me. Boom, 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 boom. I'm not like that. It's not fee fi fo fum. I'm seriously, I'm not like this. Fair enough. I mean, come on. I'm over-exaggerating. Jeez, people. They're like, what's she like to live with? I'm just sharing. It's really nice to be ministered to once in a while. Whether it's, obviously, as I shared, from one of my deacons or my wife or a Tuesday night lesson that I might listen to with Scott or even from one of you. Like a text I received recently out of the blue. And this is when sheep minister to a shepherd just out of the blue no cause i didn't reach out romans 8:18 praying for your heart today how long did that take i don't know go to romans 8:18 i don't know how long does it matter there's not many letters even in that thing <clears throat> Romans 8.18. What did that say? And why are they praying for my heart anyways? Because they get it. Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, here's a little perspective for you. It's worth it. It's worth it. What you're doing up there is worth it. What you do. Now, here's where it gets interesting. I need you to all listen up right now. Because this isn't even really about me. I'm the primary example to get you rooted. But here's what the Spirit really wants to say. You ready? You are all ministers. You are all ministers. It means you have a purpose. And you have value. the value of the minister. And I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about you. Sometimes you're just so weary that God provides another person to reach into the jar of medicine. For example, the ISAB we just read about in Revelation 3.18 and apply it for you. Matthew 4.11, Philippians 2.25-30, Galatians 6.6-10. 6, even Jesus Christ himself, the greatest minister of all time, the perfect one. You might say what some of you say probably about me in a small way. He doesn't need ministering to. Jesus Christ, he was perfect. What's he need ministering for? Go to Matthew 4.1 if you think that he wasn't ministered to because he was. We all get weary Your family, your friends, your neighbors, your pastor, your spouse, your children, your parents, you name it. We all sometimes would enjoy a little ministering too. How about Jesus Christ himself was ministered to? Yep. Matthew 4.11, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Okay, some of you can't make 40 minutes. Just saying. And the tempter, you know who this is, 
slinky serpent Satan. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. In other words, Satan, the angel of light, is going to capitalize on your weaknesses. If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, what? Angels came and began to what? Minister to him. Wait a minute. Jesus Christ was in a condition that these ministers had value to Him? Yep. Yep. Angels came came and began to minister him. Why? He was tired. He was weary. He was beat up. He just wrestled with the devil. Any of you want to claim that, stake that claim? I don't think so. He was hungry. 40 days. Not 40 minutes. Point on the board. Sometimes you're just so weary that God provides another person to reach into the jar of medicine and apply it for you. How about Paul? He also enjoyed being ministered to. Go to Philippians 2.25. <clears throat> Philippians 2.25. And oh, by the way, these things have everything to do with grace and works. I know people that think that the only thing to do in the spiritual life is keep on learning the Word of God, and they never minister any, to anybody except maybe themselves. It's incredible. Philippians 2.25. <clears throat> this is Paul now, who also enjoyed being ministered to. And you've got to remember, Paul, you think of Paul's reputation. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He was for lack of a better term, you know, kind of like the big wig guy. You know, when Paul was around, people kind of noticed. But he didn't want any of that. He didn't want it. He said, I don't care about any of that stuff. The only thing I want to know is Christ and him crucified. Are we good? But you know how people were, I'm from Apollos, I'm from Paul. You get into these ridiculousness. So he didn't care who ministered to him. One of my favorite things that I used to love when I was doing prep school was the little kids would minister to me. Little kids, they would say these things, and I'd be like, oh, you're obviously the smart one in the group, including myself right now. And they would minister to me. But you see, an arrogant person won't accept that kind of a thing. 
Now let's see what Paul said. Philippians 2.25, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, and just as far as Scripture is concerned, there's nothing special noted about him in Scripture, which in my opinion makes him relatable. I mean, who's Epaphroditus? I don't know. Right? But look what he says. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, and what? Minister to my need. That's right. Paul had needs, and here's this guy, this so-called nobody as far as Scripture is concerned. I hope you know what I'm talking about there. And Paul said he ministered to me. So a lay person ministered to the so-called great apostle. That's magnificent. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard. Yeah. What did he do that was so special? He ministered. He did what he was supposed to do. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete that was uh, what was deficient in your service to me. Imagine that. He went so far that he was up, put his life on the line to minister to Paul. Now, some of you might not ever pick up the phone or write a text or jot down an email or say an extra hello, or anything like that. And your life definitely ain't on the line. The only thing on the line is the last Twinkie over there, or the last cupcake. The only person's life is on the line is the one that's trying to get it before you. We don't call that ministering. <laughs> right? It's ridiculous. What are we doing here? Seriously. Ministry at any level, is going to be met with opposition. So much so, that it'll make a person weary. So that's the dichotomy, right? <clears throat> if you want to follow the Word of God, and you actually want to fulfill the purpose and be a minister, you're going to get weary. I mean, you're looking at a person who's often weary as a result. Go to Galatians 6.6. 6. Now, I could have went right to 6-7, but for some reason, I really like Galatians 6-6. Six, six. We'll see why in a moment. <laughs> I don't know why. It just, like, jumps out at me. <laughs> Galatians 6-6. Six, six. The one who has taught the word, that would be you, is to share all the good, all good things with the one who teaches them. That's me. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. I should just like teach those kind of passages all the time, and get rich like some of these morons do, you know. So I can get like pearly white teeth, and you know, maybe I get a, maybe I'll get some implants, and I'll have like curly hair and stuff like that. <laughs> and Three thousand dollars suits. 
in like multiple homes, you know, Florida, California, Mexico. Maybe that's what I'll do. I'll just keep teaching Galatians 6.6. 6. Give me your stuff. But there's truth there. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. I didn't say that. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from his, the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For example, ministering to others. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. You will be up against opposition. You're all ministers. But let me tell you, you're going to be up against opposition. Excuse me, I've got to put one of these in my mouth before um, I lose my voice. Hopefully it doesn't click. Can you hear that? Good. Not that it would matter. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Especially. Again, the point on the board being amplified. Sometimes you're just so weary that God provides another person to reach into the jar of medicine and apply it for you. Now, let's put all of this into perspective before we get back to our primary course of study. As the Spirit's been emphasizing from this pulpit lately, up here on the board, ministering spiritual nourishment. We just saw this in Matthew 4. Man does not live on bread alone. How powerful is an emaciated man, even if when he's totally healthy, is a force to be reckoned with? The distracted man is the starving man. In other words, you could be the most powerful person, but if you're starving, if you're emaciated, if you refuse to read your Bible, if you refuse to listen to what the Spirit has to say from this pulpit, if you refuse all forms of grace, you're starving, you're emaciated. As I was watching Scott, uh, who's, if you didn't know it, um, a single man, teaching on Tuesday, I was thinking about the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.35 when he was talking about the benefits of singlehood. Let me give you the scripture. 1 Corinthians 7.35 This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. In other words, Paul, in the midst of this sort of treatise on, you know, singlehood even, there are certain benefits, he said, to being single. Not that he was preaching, or am I, that everyone should be single. I'm not saying that at all, and neither was Paul. He was just making the same point the Spirit's making here today, and it's the same principle that has been coming up, or that has been coming up for years now from this pulpit, on the topic of the details of life. If you're married, you know that there are a lot of details. If you're married and you have a home, the details increase, I don't know, 
some fold. If you're married, have a home, or if you're married, don't have a home and have kids, ooh, kids is a definite 10 to 20 fold. All right? So these are the details of life. And what Paul's saying is, listen, for, for, for those of you that, some of you should just remain the way you are. <laughs> because that's what you need in your life to have undistracted devotion to the Lord. And I will bring glory through that to me, says the Lord, in your life. It's just a concept. It's about details of life. Getting back to a more general statement up here on the board, definition of temptation is anything that takes one of God's children away from His will for them, good, bad, or ugly. I mean, you'd say, oh, how could that possibly be a temptation? It was so good, I, I won the lottery. <laughs> I got a promotion. I got a new dog, or I got a new cat, or I got a new blouse, or a new set of shoes, or I don't know. Whether it's good, bad, or ugly. If it's taking you away from His will for your life, it's no good. It's a temptation. It's designed to take you away from the fundamentals of grace itself. In other words, let me just net it out. God says, here are the you know, here are the basic components of grace, and they're not difficult, and you have total access to them, but you're too distracted by this thing over here that you never get to them. How can this thing over here be good? It can't. I don't care what it is. I don't care if it is a spouse. I don't care what it is. If it's taking away from God's will in your life, it's a problem. Anything that takes one of God's children away from His will for them, good, bad, or ugly, is the very definition of temptation. For example, if you become a slave to the blessing rather than the one who blesses, consider yourself as having fallen. God gives you a blessing, could be a legitimate blessing, but you muck it up by becoming a slave to it. He says, I'm going to give you a promotion at work, and then you say, great, this is awesome. Now I'm a slave to it. Now I'm too tired. I can't get to the Word of God. I can't read my Bible. I can't make the class. I can't do this. How in the world is that a, a, a good thing? You just became a slave to something that was so-called good. So then you have to reevaluate everything in your life. And you have to understand what are the details of life. But I gotta, I gotta go do Pokemon with my friends. What's that thing they run around doing in other people's yards now? Nobody wants to say it because then they'll admit that they do it. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. Do, 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 do. Sean, what's it called, seriously? Pokemon Go. I gotta do Pokemon Go! I gotta go risk getting arrested by running through other people's yards and on their property so I can get uh, I don't know whatever status symbol that is in there. So I can get this little idol and say to my friends, I'm I'm King Whatever and Pokemon, and I get Pokechu or whatever the heck the dude's name is. A monkey 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 chew. Or someone chewing something. Beef jerky chew. 
He's a low one, obviously. <laughs> Listen, anything that's taking you away, anything that's taking you away is a problem. So I would say this publicly that for years, and I'm not saying I'm great having the greatest success at it. Simplify. Learn to simplify your lives. Learn to simplify your lives. Learn to simplify your lives. Seriously. The more things you got in your life, there's that old saying, the more you own, the more you're owned by those things. Get rid of stuff. Get rid of your ridiculous, quote-unquote, hobbies even. Some of your hobbies are horrible. But my hobby is shopping. Yeah. All right, with that, don't despair. Lamentations 3, 22 to 23, Proverbs 24, 16. Go to Lamentations 3, 22. That's the perspective you have to have. Anything that takes you away from His will. And don't lie. Oh, this is, this is God's will. The Holy Spirit spoke to me. No, that's another spirit. Sorry. That spirit that you've been listening to is from the world. Lamentations 3.22 Don't despair, please. If, you're a, if you've mucked it up a thousand times like I have, just don't despair. Don't sit there in guilt and condemnation and say, well, I quit then. Oof. Back to Pokemon. I quit. This is too hard, and I'm too condemned, and I just stink at this. Yeah, we all stink at it. Join the club. Stop being so self-absorbed. Lamentations 3.22. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Do not dis despair just because you fail, regardless of frequency. While grace isn't a license to sin, it most definitely is an opportunity to stand back up. Go to Proverbs 24.16. Proverbs 24.16. Grace isn't a license to sin, but it most definitely is an opportunity to get back up. Proverbs 24, 16, For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. That's what you do. You felt, anybody fall? I fell down this morning. I'm not even going to tell you how many times. And when I say I fall down, I mean every nasty, unholy thought I've had since waking up this morning, I can't even count them. You guys are like, wow, he really is a wicked man. <laughs> yeah, the older I get, the worse my flesh is. This flesh is ridiculous. Honest to God, right? Amen? It's ridiculous. It gets worse. I'm like thinking, ah, man, it's going to get easier. This thing is ridiculous. It's like the world just keeps giving it more ammo. 
Right? You turn the TV on, it's a dial soap commercial. Ooh. And it's like, oh, okay, this one's thought. That thought, where'd that thought go? Supposed to be buying soap, right? Now I'm thinking about someone other than my wife, even. Wow, look at the lines on that girl. Don't act, oh, Joey. <laughs> You're my son. Good luck, right? And it has nothing to do with my love for my family, my wife, or anything like that. It's just, come on, right? It's just the way it is. We fall all the time. But what do we do? Grace says we can get back up. Now, we don't turn it around like Paul fights in Romans. We don't turn around and say, oh, is it a license to sin? No, no, no. We get back up, though. The wicked stumble in time of calamity. They don't know what to do. They just roll around. Instead of getting back up there in the, in the, the mire, rolling around and saying, this is great. Point on the board. Definition of temptation. Anything that takes one of God's children away from His will for them, good, bad, or ugly. For example, if you become a slave to the blessing, rather than the one who blesses, consider yourself as having fallen. However, do not despair. As the Spirit's been pointing out, it's by grace that we are even able to see this kind of light out of darkness. Thank God we're able to see. Thank God we're able to see. Yeah, so you open your eyes and you look and you go, oh man, that guy in the mirror is ugly. Thank God. Honestly, thank God. Good. Now I can see it. Now I can see all the warts and the you know, blemishes and what have you. Great. Now we, now we can do something. I'm not playing pretend anymore. It's also by grace that we've been made alive in Christ. That we are able, even able to walk in the light. So let us not despair, not ever. Here's some wisdom. There's a big difference between walking in darkness and walking in the light. In darkness, as an unbeliever, you are blind. Whereas in the light, you can see, even though you may trip or stumble from time to time, fall to temptation. There's a big difference between those two things. Sometimes, when you're tempted and you stumble, you start walking literally in the same direction as an unbeliever, as Paul would say. Sometimes we can even look like carnal, carnal people, unbelievers in other words, right? But we don't stay there. We don't stay there. We always repent. We've been given a repentant heart at salvation if we're saved. Paul taught this to a group of believers at Ephesus. Go to Ephesians 5.15. Ephesians 5.15. What did Paul say? He's talking to believers. He's writing to believers. Therefore, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise men, but as wise. So even within the distinction or in the category, if you would, of believers, believers can walk 
wise or unwisely. What does he say? Well, why don't you walk wise then? Duh. What did Ryle say? Just read it. Honestly, just read it. Don't hypercategorize it. Don't hyperdoctrinalize any of this. He just says, be careful while you walk. Don't be an idiot. Be, he doesn't say that as Colin's interpretation, right? Not as unwise men, but as wise. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, verse 17, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual psalms, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Yeah. Walk wise. How's that work? Well, pick up your Bible and read. Honestly, pick up your Bible and read. Listen to what he's been saying to you from this pulpit now for a very long time. It's not complicated. If you read your Bible with the faith of a child, if you come to class even with an open heart with the faith of a child, it's not hard. It's not hard at all. It's actually pretty obvious, isn't it? We just like to make everything not so obvious so that we can find those little loopholes and justify why you couldn't go to Sunday service because of the Pokemon Go championships. <laughs> There's a big difference between walking in darkness and walking in the light. A little more doctrine, if you would, on walking up here on the board regarding Ephesians 5. Notice that believers walk, Ephesians 5.15. Not always wisely, but nonetheless, they have been made able to walk. Walking in light is impossible for an unbeliever. 1 John 1, 5-7 Paul could have never written Ephesians 5 to unbelievers and expected it to settle into their souls with any real meaning. Of course you know what he means. All you have to do is read it. Anybody here walked unwisely since they've been saved? So what's Paul saying? Don't walk that way. Is that hard? What's the problem then? Well, you see. Shut up. You don't see. That's the problem. On this note, last week we highlighted a focus on professional Christian or the professional Christian. In other words, one who walks as a wise man does. I mean, that's what a professional Christian, quote-unquote, looks like. Someone who's walking wisely. Okay, I'm going to ask you a question. It's going to sound silly, but it's this obvious. Okay, if I get drunk right now... Hey, let's do this as an experiment. Just kidding. (laughs) If I get drunk right now, and I go out just like this, and I'm walking down the street... Um, with that sign on, with the yoke, and I'm cockeyed and walking. How professional or how wise am I being in that moment? Why? Because I'm dissipated. 
I can't be filled with the Spirit if I'm drunk. That's what Paul's saying there. So how wise am I being? How professional a Christian could I possibly be if I'm wearing that and I'm drunk and I'm the pastor of North Christian Church? Not very wise to go against Scripture that says I'm supposed to have a good standing in the community. Something's not right. That's what Scripture says. Whether I like it or not, I have to have a good standing in the community. So I can't get drunk. I can't stagger down the street. Why? Because that's not professional at all. That's actually the antithesis of the professional Christian. We want to stick with the analogy. Up here on the board. A professional Christian. Professionals care about the little things. This all came up as a result of are reading Jesus' own words about you've been faithful in the little things, so you're faithful in much. You're unrighteous in the little things, therefore you're unrighteous in much. Professionals care about the little things. In fact, that's what makes them good professionals in any field. That's part of what makes a good soldier for Christ. 2 Timothy 2, 3-4. Let me give you another analogy. to help drive this home. Think about, and excuse me if you've never flown on an airplane before, but think of your favorite airline. And then ask yourself why that is the case. Why is that airline your favorite? I mean, after all, they apparently have all managed to get you here. Right? Nobody's dead. I mean, they took you from point A to point D, right? B, right? Okay. So they're all doing their job, I guess. So you probably said you like, you know, XYZ airline because of all the little things they do. They get this right. They get that right. They don't lose my luggage. They don't do this. They give me this much more space for my knees. What happens when you're 6'5? I'm not 6'5. <laughs> it's all the little things, right? Oh, they put those cute little magazines in there. Oh, they, you know, they give me that warm cloth. They show up and they give me this with the tongs, you know? Ooh, here's a warm cloth. Would you like to wipe yourself down? Nobody knows what to do. Everybody's like, what do I do with it? <laughs> what am I doing? You're like, I don't know what to do. You ever notice that? I watch everybody. Would you like a hot cloth? The person's like, sure. What do I do with it? Frank, what do I do? Portuguese, right? Might as well do it. Why do you like that airline? The fact is, they're the most professional, most likely, in your eyes. And if that's not the top reason, it's very close to the very top of the reasons why you said that's, those are your favorite. Being your favorite airline and being the most professional are almost the same thing. This is all that the Spirit's impressing upon us with this concept of the professional Christian. He's not saying that the Word of God demands we are flawless, for we are still saddled with this sinful flesh. 
But he is saying that God's desire is that we become increasingly professional as representatives of his son. He's saying in context that if you're saved, you've already been enlisted into Christ's army. For only believers wear the true uniform. But as is the case in the regular army, not everyone wears their uniform as well as they should. Some some are out of shape. Some are wrinkled. Some only have one or two badges or stripes, if any, blah, blah, blah. That's all part of his plan. To point these things out to you. To tell you, um, my will for you is that you increase in professionalism. That you get, quote unquote, better from my perspective on representing my son. People are like, that sounds legalistic. If that, if that sounds legalistic to you, you're literally not reading your Bible. Honest to goodness. What are we on right now? Grace and what? Works. Who does those works? There's no way you can do a good work without His help. But to say you won't do any works with His help is to say that He fails and God doesn't fail. This is all part of his plan. Here's what a professional Christian looks like up here on the board. I'll give you the message Bible, Proverbs 4, 23 to 24. Keep vigilant watch over your heart. That's where life starts. Don't talk out of both sides of your mouth. Avoid careless banter, white lies. You know the little things? And gossip. Keep your eyes straight ahead. Ignore all sideshow distractions. Watch your step, and the road will stretch out smooth before you. Look neither right nor left. Leave evil in the dust. We're on a narrow road, right? Yes, we are. And Satan's best hope for attacking a believer is to distract you, to get your eyes diverted. It's like I said, when you're flying an airplane and you can't see outside and you look that way, you tend to go... You need instruments to keep you straight. The seat of your pants doesn't work. Honest to goodness, that's, you learn that in instrument flight. You, don't go by the seat of your pants because it'll lie. Don't go by what everybody wants to feel about. I had some girl attempt to berate me. Don't you tell me what I feel about God. I don't give a crap what you feel about God. What does the instrument panel say? What does this say right here? You know how I know you don't know? Because you don't read it. That's how I know. Don't tell me what you feel. I don't want to hear what you feel about God. God can care less about what you feel about Him. You're an idiot. That's why I don't have any friends. <laughs> That's why all you need to do the evangelizing, because obviously I burn the bridges as soon as I get to them. <laughs> Jeez, I don't know why they won't talk to me. I'm serious. Don't tell me how you feel. Seriously. How you feel gets you in trouble. I'll, hey, I got a couple over here going, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. But I feel in my heart that this is the right thing to do. No. No. Go by the instrument panel. Because the instruments don't lie. 
You remember, I, I think one of the first blogs I wrote, maybe if it was a book, The Death Spiral. Do you guys remember that? I feel like I'm rising up. I feel like I'm getting closer to God. No, you're in a, what we call a death spiral. I'm not going to prove this to you, but this is what happens. You ready? If I put you in a corkscrew and you're going down and down and down and you can't see outside and you're going by the seat of your pants, you think you're going up, straight up in the air because you feel pressure on your seat. You don't know that you're going like this. And you die. But if you pay attention to the instruments, the instruments say, hey, guess what? You're going like this. And you're losing altitude. So it has nothing to do with what you feel. So a lot of, especially women, even men, men are such pansies now. That's how I feel. Put a pair of pants on, queer. That's how I feel. Are you a woman or a guy? All right, I'm digressing. I'm going to lose my voice again. Andrea, see what happens? I'm serious. So much femininity out there. Amen? Bunch of women. No offense, women. Don't go by we feel. Go by the instruments. Here's your instruments. Here's how you learn how to fly by instrument. This doesn't lie. Your feelings lie all the time. You know you were born with a deceitful heart. Your feelings lie all the time. So cut it out. The spiritual life is not a bunch of feelings. I feel so close to God now. Oh, really? How'd that happen? Seriously. Oh, I feel like I'm rising up. No, you're doing this. In the past, I got this guy over this ball guy. He's like, hey, look at the instruments. Nope. Look at the instruments. I don't like you. You're ugly. You, told, you said so yourself. You looked in the mirror. You said you were ugly, so you're ugly. I don't have to listen to you. Don't go by what you feel. Okay? Up here on the board, as I began with DJ's quote this morning, I'd rather be pummeled by hard lessons by grace than have my feelings stroked. I'd rather walk out of here a little sore than artificially uplifted. God knows what I need. Every single person in here needs to repeat that to themselves. That's a biblical perspective worth listening to. Which is why I'm repeating it. God knows what you need. We learn this. Deuteronomy 8.3 He humbled Anna to oppress, humiliate even. He humbled you and let you go hungry that He might make you understand. God's going to do whatever is necessary to make you understand. God uses whatever means necessary to impress his will and purpose upon man's heart, whether it is accommodating to man's sensibilities or not. That is true grace. Sometimes grace is like, this is awesome, right? Amen? Sometimes grace is like, oh, this hurts. But it's no less grace. We're the ones that are disjointed. You ever see someone get their shoulder put back in place? It hurts, and that's done. You're disjointed. You need to be popped back into place sometimes. Stated more practically, God will humble us 
even, you know, God will humble us if we aren't already humbled, excuse me. This is grace that is designed to produce something, humility, that opens us up to even more grace, and so on. Matthew 13, 12, James 4, 6. One of the greatest deceptions the Spirit has been debunking for us in all of this good work on grace and works is grace isn't always nice. Whoever said that? Whoever postulated that? Probably some person who shouldn't stand behind a pulpit. That's who. Probably someone who feels that God, since God is love, that grace must always be nice and warm and snuggly and, you know, oh, that's the kind of dad I want. Whoever said that grace is always nice? It's not, quote unquote, nice. It's righteous. But sometimes a righteous right hand of God. And it's. Man has pigeonholed grace into a one sided thing where it is defined as all things that accommodate man's predisposition about God's benevolence towards his creatures. These are the inventions of man's flesh. Now this takes us back, and I'll close here shortly. This takes us back to our entry point for the works side of grace and works. All of that work, all that perspective, what is that about? To get you thinking rightly about what works actually are. Works are a result of grace. But if you mess up grace, you don't understand works. Up here on the board, any confusion about works is preceded by confusion about grace. Consider, for example, that by grace, God has completed a wonderful work in you by making you a new creature. Up here on the board, by grace, at salvation, you have been given a new nature. Like Jesus' perfect nature, your new nature cannot say or do anything inconsistent with grace. Your old nature is just the opposite. Hence Paul's own admission of his struggle between the two in Romans 7. This is what grace looks like. If you're saved, you have a new nature. All it really is interested in, bring glory to God. Whatever your will is, your will be done, Lord. Jesus taught me to, teach, to, to pray that way even. Your will be done. The flesh, exact opposite. Exact opposite. My will be done. Self-will. Egocentrism. All of it. Wrapped up into this thing. But here's the deal on the theological front that he's been ironing out. You either accept that God changes the believer, making them a new creature, like Scripture says, or you don't. Either you accept what plainly stated Scripture states, or you reject it. Go to 2 Corinthians 5.17. 2 Corinthians 5.17. That's between you and the Lord. If you don't believe that, that's between you and the Lord. But I know what, the, I know what Scripture says, and I know what, what the Spirit wants you to know about it, about the new creature. He doesn't want you to doubt the grace of God. He doesn't want you to subtract from salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Not an improvement on the old self. He's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 
up here on the board. On the new creature, a true believer, a person who has been saved by grace through faith, has been made new. This new nature is a partaker of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. This is a grace gift given at salvation or not at all. It is not something a person chooses after being saved, for that supposition implies a person has not been truly saved from sin. Romans 6.2. It's one of the reasons I showed you that video on Thursday evening. There are whole religions out there that say, oh, believe in Jesus Christ, but do all this stuff after the fact. He really didn't change you enough. He didn't perfect you. Uncle Jimmy, he's in this garbage place called purgatory. We made it up so that you'd give us more money. Do you know how that came about, right? Purgatory? Oh, yeah, fabricating. Why? So they can make more money. I don't want to get into it. If you didn't see Thursday night's message, um, do it. Please do it. The person doesn't choose to do God's grace afterwards on their own time. As Paul would say up here on the board, how shall, in Romans 6, 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Well, you see, if you're still an unbeliever and you believe a lie, you certainly can still live in it. But Paul was talking about believers. If you're saved, how can you possibly still live in sin? You cannot. You can sin, but you are no longer in that dominion even. You've been made new. That new creature doesn't go back there. It never does. This thing can take us back there, but the new creature never abides in that thing, never resides in that thing, never lives in it. We are alive in Christ. That's where we left off on last Sunday. It's where we're going to have to leave off today. So I just want to give you a... Um, Yeah, just two more minutes. That died to sin is in what we call the aorist active indicative up here on the board. A little Greek for you. I don't want you to become theologians. But just so you know, apothnesco in the Greek is in the aorist active indicative, which is translated died to sin. Refers to something that dogmatically happened at a specifically specific point in the past and continues to hold true. Okay? When you were saved, if you were saved, that's what happened. You died to sin. Big deal. You ready? Big deal. Because the grace of God says, I'm going to take you out of this hole and make you new. You are dead spiritually. Now you're alive in Christ. That's a big deal. A really big deal. And because the grace of God did it, guess what? It's permanent. It's permanent. It's real. It's absolute. And the only thing the new creature can do, who is alive in Christ, is bring glory to God. Our flesh, on the other hand, is preoccupied over here. Hence Romans 7. Refers to something that dogmatically happened at a specific point in the past, and continues to hold true. A perfect example is when a person is saved, up here on the board, died to sin, apotnesco, 
and then I'll end it here. Aorist, active, indicative, means that when a person is saved, sin loses its dominion over them. They become dead to sin. From sin's perspective. Being made a new creature, 2 Corinthians 5.17, means being placed alive to God in Christ. Romans 6.11. Did I take you to Romans 6? Do that real quick. Please. Romans 6.11. So there's this absolute thing, this heiress active indicative, if you're saved. If you're not, it's good for you to know this is what it happens when you're saved, whether you like it or not. can't subtract from salvation. Romans 6.11. Even so, consider, that's the word logizomai. It means to calculate. It means to calculate. It's not emotional. Ready? Now, I feel saved. So? What do you mean you feel saved? The Bible doesn't say you feel saved. The Bible says the Holy Spirit will convict you of it. That's true. But as far as you feel saved, what am I going to tell you? Even so, consider, calculate yourselves to be dead to sin. That's that word again. But what? Alive to God in Christ Jesus. Could there be a more dramatic representation of what happens at salvation. Honestly, just envision that. Dead to sin. You were born in sin. God saved you, delivered you. Remember all that we've learned about saved doesn't mean here's your ticket to heaven. It means I actually saved you. I delivered you from that. Okay? I'm not talking about just a destination called heaven. I'm talking about delivering you right now from that. That's what it means to be saved. Look at that. What a scene. You're now dead to that and alive in Christ. Think about that. Is there more a dramatic display in Scripture? Arguably not. On the essence of salvation, that's what happened. Consider yourselves, calculate it, to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for making, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> for making us think about the things that matter most in life, and for giving us this time of peace and quiet to meditate on such things. Thank you, Father, for those you have gathered around us, that they be encouraged, knowing that their very presence is an encouragement to the rest of us. We are so very grateful and thankful, Father, that you chose us in eternity past, we believers, to spend eternity with you, even though not a single one of us bears any worthiness except through your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ alone. Thank you for choosing to send him to take our place, to bear our sins, to even be separated from you for a time, this spotless and blameless Lamb. We pray that our hearts never stray too far from the gospel regarding our Savior and that those still struggling in this world might find peace through Him and find everlasting reconciliation with you as a result. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name, by the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.